0: I'm Satya Doyle-Bayak, and this is the Salome Podcast. Something is making its approach to us. Our wars are results of projection, of not being able to understand that what we are actually fighting externally is something we don't want to fight inside of ourselves. Here we are, how will we hold this, how will we hold the light inside the dark? If consciousness is going to shift on the planet, it shifts in the single individual. In each episode, my co-host Carol Ferris and I explore the social and personal relevance of Carl Jung's magnum opus known as the Red Book. Carol and I began recording these episodes as live salons online on the first Sunday of our COVID quarantine in Portland, Oregon in the spring of 2020. Each week, we welcome the community into our conversation with a concluding Q&A. So we're starting today with first day, the chapter, first day, chapter 8 in Libra Segundas with Carl Jung's Red Book. We're continuing our journey. So it's page 277. And we're actually, I mean, now recollecting ourselves here. Yeah, Carol's putting an image on the screen. Carol, you want to share this image? And then you're going to kick us off with the astrology of our solstice, eclipse, Mercury retrograde world that we've just entered into.
1: So this is the um, the initial cap in uh, first day. You see here the snake rising on the right, and here is this figure holding up the sun. And here is a star being born out of a cosmic spiral. And I um, as we get into these this, the first day, and the second day chapters, for me, it's really the most wonderful journey into creativity and imagination to um, finally for Jung finally to allow the gift of image to as a creator in a in a matrix of possibility to let something rise. So um, I, I think this image is you know when we as as we get deeper into the book there's more and more and more images so it, it's Something is really now not just speaking itself to him through words, but the images are becoming more and more potent and they're becoming more and more rapid. Satya so asked me to stay a little bit about the astrology of now. As the uh, Wall Street astrologers say, the geocosmic science of now, which I guess is more saleable on Wall Street than the word astrology. We had a, the summer solstice not long that was yesterday about 2:20 and then last night at 11:41 we had a solar eclipse at zero, 00 degrees of cancer and not only is there this one of three eclipses but this is a, a sort of completion and a, a wrapping of something that was ignited in uh, 2019 there are long long families of eclipses for those of you who are interested they're called the saros cycles s-a-r-o-s and our our cycle has a, a root in an unimaginably distant past and will go forward into the future so they're part of a very long pattern and chain of events there are families of eclipses i won't get into that except to say that one of the things I like about thinking about an eclipse is from the Chinese point of view, reading number 55 in the Yijing is called Feng, is Abundance. And it talks about enjoying a time of abundance, even though you know that it won't last. Even though you know that this sun is, and, and like the solstice, That these are our longest days, but they already signal the arrival of the days beginning to shorten and that this is a part of the rhythm of the yang energy of light and the yin energy of form. So I think of yang and yin, productivity and form. And in the astrological model, in the Western astrological model, the signs that are associated with the most yang energy is cancer, the sign cancer. And the most yin energy, the darkest time of year, is Capricorn They both are cardinal points of the year, as are the equinoxes. They're the hinges of the year. It's where the light is turning. So they're markers for us in uh, a reliable and potent rhythm of, really, we could say, of the year's metabolism. So deepest, deepest winter and deepest summer, here we are in summer, in some very interesting ways, are the most conservative times of year. It's when we're holding everything tenderly, when in the winter the light inside the dark, the seeds inside the dark are being held tenderly so that they can gestate and grow. In the summer, you know, all of us that, all, that we're gardeners, especially here in Oregon, we're, we're not very close to harvest yet, except for a few still kind of cold weather crops. And so cancer is the time when nature is bringing thing, everything up into its fullness before it's delivered. And so in the zodiacal model, that's cancer delivering Leo, the golden child. So we were, we're at a a hinge point where we're at a peak of something that is going to turn into something else. And the great paradox of the cycle, you don't get the harvest of something, you don't get the form until the days begin to shorten again. That, that for a culture that is enamored of light and the solar principle, and we'll talk about this in this particular reading, that for a culture that's enamored of individuation and transcendence and light and productivity and things being in the light of day, the idea that where the richness of the cycle comes from is actually when it starts to get dark again. You don't get the harvest till it starts to get dark. So we're at this point. We're at this high point. In the Chinese sky, there is a, what is called a Xiu X-I-U, which is an, an, a, roughly an analog of the Western zodiac. There's a Xiu called gui, which means ghost wagon, and not only is that this part of the sky where the sun is traveling now, not only is it in our term summer and bringing something up to being, but from a Chinese point of view, it's called a ghost wagon because it's important to remember that even as everything's coming up into matter, if you only treat the world as matter, you might as well be a ghost. You, you have to remember that spirit in matter. So it's, uh, when you study the differences between the zodiacs, it's really interesting to see how the cultures in some ways parallel each other and inform each other, but also bring very, very different frames of reference to the same time of year. So we're at the highest, lightest point of the year, and there is darkness while it's light, the eclipse. And again, what it says in abundance, reading 55, is you can see the pole stars at noon. So for me, the idea of an eclipse is we can see things we can't customarily see. That again, the the idea of light and dark, the, the idea that you have to, there has to be a triggering or an unusual event that causes us to look at something in a way that customarily we could not look at it. So not only are we at the the most yang time of year, but we have the most yin event in the most yang time of year where now we have to see things in a way we haven't been able to see things before. And we also have a passel of retrograde motion, which I talked a little bit about this in one of our previous episodes. It's Imagine that you're in a train at the station and there are several trains on several different tracks and you're moving and they're moving and everything is moving at a different rate of speed and you don't know if you're moving forward. Are they moving forward or are you moving backward and they're moving forward? And so we're in a period where in a system that we could say has 11 different powerful orbits going on, More than half of the elements are in the shifting, slightly disorienting movement relationship to each other. So Mercury's just turned retrograde, Venus has been retrograde, Jupiter is retrograde, Saturn is retrograde, Pluto is retrograde, Ceres is retrograde. So we are in a period of disorientation in which it's possible by looking to see things we don't customarily see because things are not regular.
0: Thank you, Carol. And I think by the time we speak next, Venus will be out of retrograde finally. Is that right? So we're June
1: twenty-fourth.
0: Some some shifting back. Yeah. yeah. She'll she'll come back into the light again. We'll see her.
1: Well she already popped up as the as the Eastern star. And um, as I said a couple of times ago, in in some astronomical cultures. When she emerges from the underworld, she emerges as a warrior. Mm. So we'll we'll see what we see when she's um, moving forward again.
0: Beautiful. Thank you, and such a good setup for us for today because we're we're really dancing between the dark and the light, the black and the white, the hot and the cold, and um, science and religion and all this. So um, we're really meeting Is Dubar. Is Dubar is I think one of the figures that is most known in the Red Book. Carol, do you want to just start with the image? You want to share the image? And again, this is when Jung, when the paintings really begin in larger form. This is our first big painting in the Red Book. And so it really begins here. And we're going to be spending a little more time with the images. So just appreciating the detail of this image. Again, this is a full scale, large scale painting for those who don't have it it's really quite enormous. And just appreciating that Jung is creating all of this artwork. This is his work, in addition to this inner journey, in addition to the storytelling. Carol, again, do you want to just describe a little bit of what we're seeing here with Isdubar, with this um, image? I love this image.
1: Where, where, the place I like to start is at the very bottom in the middle is a kneeling figure. In the desert, this is the, this is the repetition of the desert image, and this is Jung on the path. This is that he, he says in the beginning that he's, um, I'll just read this part. A desolate mountain range blocks my way, though a narrow valley gorge allows me to enter. The way leads inevitably between two high rock faces. So here is Jung, the supplicant, facing east, at the bottom, with his arms outspread, welcoming what comes from the east, whether we call it the rising sun or, or Isdubar. And I, and I love all of these um, kind of desert oasis plants at the bottom and these Xorian. Are these crocodiles? Are they stegosauruses? There's some primeval lizardy figures in the rocks. And behind him are winged worms, which, of course, are serpents, are dragons, are emissaries. And, of course, when we get to the end of the Red Book, we'll end with worms. And here, the central figure is Dubar, this mighty, mighty figure from the East, the bull man. You know, he has on this jeweled vest and a tunic, and he's carrying a double-bladed axe, and he has bull horns on his head. And above it is some, above, and between the horns and between these winged serpents is, it, it, imagistically it almost looks like a pineapple, but clearly it's some kind of, of botanical life here. I, the, the one comment that I want to make about this bull man with the double-headed axe is that there are several references in the footnotes to Gilgamesh. And um, I don't know if you, you know, the conscious and the unconscious, the powerful, powerful images in the ancient Mesopotamian, Sumerian, and Mesopotamian world of winged bull men that lined the entryway to the palaces of the great Assyrian kings. That for approximately two to three thousand years prior to that were the great matriarchal ages. That what in astrology and the precession of the equinoxes is the Taurian age, which was matriarchal, not patriarchal. And the symbol, the bull, was profoundly related to the feminine. And often the bull's horns, if you think about the ancient birthing Chambers of of Malta, for example, the image of the bull and the bull's horns are very much about the uterus and the ovaries, fallopian tubes. And the double-bladed axe was also a very powerful matriarchal symbol in Central Europe, for those of you who have read Maria Gimbutas and the the gods and goddesses of ancient Europe. So now all of a sudden we have this man, this giant figure from the East, this bull man with a double-bladed axe. So I find that compelling about this image, too, that, that Jung kneeling before, on the path to the east, kneeling before this bull man, and this bull man's accoutrements are essentially adopted from an older age that was a powerful feminine um, matriarchal age, not a patriarchal age. And for those of you who have read or are familiar with the Gilgamesh epic, um, Gilgamesh and his buddy Enkidu are the beginning of the, essentially of the Iron Age, which which precedes the arrival of all of the, the gods of the ancient Western world. So that's what I'm looking at when I look at this image. I'm going to read a little bit as we get into this discussion about what we have here. On the third night, a desolate mountain range blocks my way, Though a narrow valley gorge allows me to enter The way leads inevitably between two high rock faces My feet are bare and injure themselves on the jagged rocks Here the path becomes slippery One half of the way is white, the other black I step onto the black side and recoil, horrified It is hot iron I step onto the white half, it is ice But so it must be I dart across and onward, and finally the valley widens into a mighty rocky basin. A narrow path winds up along vertical rocks to the mountain ridge at the top. As I approach the top, a mighty booming resounds from the other side of the mountain like ore being pounded. The sound gradually swells and echoes thunderously in the mountain. As I reach the pass, I see an enormous man approach from the other side. Two bull horns rise from his great head and a rattling suit of armor covers his chest. His black beard is ruffled and decked with exquisite stones. The giant is carrying a sparkling double axe in his hand like those used to strike bulls. Before I can recover from my amazed fright, the giant is standing before me. I look at his face. It is faint, and pale and deeply wrinkled. His almond shaped eyes look at me, astonished. Horror takes hold of me. This is Isdubar, the mighty, the bull man. He stands and looks at me. His face speaks of consuming inner fear, and his hands and knees tremble. Isdubar, the powerful bull, trembling? Is he frightened? I call out to him. Oh, Isdubar most powerful, spare my life and forgive me for lying like a worm in your path. And this begins the dialogue between Jung and Isdubar. Isdubar says, I do not want your life. Where do you come from? I come from the West. You come from the West? Do you know the Western lands? Is this the right way to the Western lands? In his footnote, Jung talks about that this is the western lands of the land of the dead from Egyptian mythology. Do you come from the western lands? Is this the right way? Jung says, I come from a western land whose coast washes against the great western sea. Does the sun sink in that sea or does it touch the solid land in its decline? The sun sinks far beyond the sea. Beyond the sea? What lies there? There's nothing but empty space there. As you know, the earth is round, and moreover, it turns around the sun. Damned one, where do you get such knowledge? So there's no immortal land where the sun goes down to be reborn? Are you speaking the truth? His eyes flicker with fury and fear. He steps a thundering pace closer, and I tremble. Oh, is Dubar most powerful one. Forgive my presumptuousness, but I'm really speaking the truth. I come from a land where there's proven science and where people live who travel around the world with their ships. Our scholars know through measurement how far the sun is from each point of the surface of the earth. It is a celestial body that lies unspeakably far out in unending space. Unending, did you say? Is the space of the world unending and we can never reach the sun? Most powerful one, insofar as you are mortal, you can never reach the sun. I see him overcome with suffocating fear. I am mortal, and I shall never reach the sun and never reach immortality. He smashes his axe with a powerful clanging blow on the rock. Be gone, miserable weapon. You are not much use. How should you be of use against infinity against the eternal void and against the unreplenishable there was no one left for you to conquer smash yourself what's it worth in the west the sun sinks into the lap of glowing clouds and bright crimson so go away sun, thrice damned god and wrap yourself in your immortality He snatches the smashed piece of his axe from the ground and hurls it toward the sun. Here you have your sacrifice, your last sacrifice. He collapses and sobs like a child. I stand shaking and hardly dare stir. Miserable worm, where did you suckle on this poison? Oh, is Dubar most powerful one. What you call poison is science. In our country, we're nurtured on it from youth, and that may be one reason why we haven't properly flourished and remain so dwarfish. When I see you, however, it seems to me as if we are all somewhat poisoned. I'm going to stop here. Saty and I will both talk a bit about this idea of solar conscious, of, of, of science and doubt, of faith and belief and science and knowing. But I was very, very struck by this phrase, go away, son, thrice damned God, and wrap yourself in your immortality. And a part of that, a part of my consideration was the first thing that it made me think about was it made me think about Ahab in Moby Dick, where Ahab says he'd smite the son. His his crew is beginning to realize that they're in the presence of a, a really dangerous maniac. And the piece of gold that Ahab has nailed up on the ship that glints with the sun, there are all of these references to essentially to the solar principle of accomplishment and achievement. And so, again, I was very struck by by this reference to the sun that Jung is facing east, that Isdubar, this giant bull man, this powerful man with a double-bladed axe, is coming from the East and Jung is expecting to have this illuminating encounter with this essentially solar principle. Maybe it's a journey for Jung to the secret of the golden flower. Maybe it's a journey to the Tao Te Ching. Maybe it's a journey to, is there another way for Jung to think about his experience of the heart of things? But again, in the horoscope, here is Jung's son in the sign Leo. And the, the time that this vision is happening, January 8th, 1914, again, he is still in the grip of your, the energy on his personal horizon of a shock to his system, and that in the depths, all of his structures of belief are being challenged. And since we last looked at this chart in the last two episodes of early January, 1914, the sun, Venus and Mercury, the sun, the heart principle, the creator in the the matrix of creation, Venus, love, and Mercury mind are traveling together, um, setting off again this grand cardinal cross. Jung is at a crossroads in his life. And now the sun itself is precipitating this crisis, and um, and the hero throws his axe at the sun. So this idea of solar consciousness and lunar consciousness, it, he goes on to say on page two eighty five, he talks about pursuing the sun and wanting to marry himself with the immeasurable mother of the moon and night. So this particular encounter. And the idea, again, of the light and the dark, the, the hot and the cold, the white and the black, and the winding serpent, the poison that Izdubar has been infected with by this scientific solar knowledge, precipitates the, the whole discussion about science and faith. So, Satya.
0: Thanks, Carol, for all of that. I'm going to read a few lines just that speak to this question of science as poison or logos as poison and you know continuing on what carol is saying you see jung just as we've seen him in preceding chapters He's encountering these imaginal figures, and they're both affecting each other very profoundly. And that continues for these coming chapters with Isdubar. We're going to stop at a cliffhanger today, and then we'll continue with this kind of important journey that he goes on with Isdubar. It's really one of the most critical stories of the book. But what's happening is Jung is encountering these living beings, this other life inside of his own self, and they're affecting each other in this dance, in this interplay. So they're finding kind of what is poison to each other, right? And this really pairs with Jung's journey into understanding what the value of medicine is, what the value of psychology fundamentally is, what psychiatry, in his day, psychiatry wasn't primarily the prescription of pills, right? It was, it was the beginning of all psychology, of an understanding of the medicine of the mind, of psyche. And he's really trying to understand what is matter, what is psyche, what is imaginal, what is truth, what is science. I mean, he's really working on an understanding of what is science. And it's also, this is also the first chapter, I believe, I'm kind of reflecting back, but I think it's the first time he's used the word magic. Is that true, Carol? Or have okay. we already, yeah. yeah, it's, it's yeah. really when he starts... You know, in exploring the word magic," but the idea of the magician or magic is going to come up a lot more later on, so it's this question of what is science and what is magic, and he plays with these words a lot. so on page two two eighty Isdubar says, "You call poison truth, is poison truth, or is truth poison? Do not our astrologers and priests also speak the truth, and yet theirs does not act like poison. So he's been felled. He's, he no longer believes. Isdubar no longer has faith in the regeneration of the world, of the capacity for him to encounter the sun. All these things that gave his life meaning. He suddenly, by encountering Jung and this idea of science, he no longer has faith. There's something tremendous that has just been lost. So later on, Isdubar says, are there two sorts of truth? And Jung says, it seems to me to be so. Our truth is that which comes to us from the knowledge of outer things. The truth of your priests is that which comes to you from inner things. And this helps Izdubar. He suddenly feels a little better about things. And then Jung starts to share with him what science has produced in the Western world, in his world, And again, we're kind of playing with these ideas of magic and science because Jung starts to share with Isdubar these things that have been created, that you can make fire just just like we did when lighting a candle this morning, right? You just strike a match, you light fire, you create fire, but that seems like magic. And then there's airplanes. Jung speaks to this idea of planes, of flying and that, again, feels like magic. And it is, right? Feeling, again, all of these experiences we've all grown up with. And then the idea of telling time and just carrying around a timepiece, and not having to read the stars and, and the sun. So he's explaining all of this. But Isdubar says, but this science is the awful magic that has lamed me. How can it be that you are still alive even though you drink from this poison every day? So then I start to reflect on what it is and what Jung was reflecting on at the time that in fact is poisoning all of us with the loss of faith and the, the just addiction or obsession or um, you know, really religious observance of logos and of science. So 282 here, he says, uh, Jung says, science has taken from us the capacity of belief. And Isdubar says, what? You have lost that too? How then do you live? I just think of so much of the crux of Jung's psychology, of this interplay between belief and science, again, and if, you, if some of you, many of you maybe have seen, you can easily find this online, at the end of his life, this is a long time from the start of this, uh, when Jung is writing this dialogue, um, when the BBC interviewer asks Jung, do you believe in God? And there's this whole cheeky response, right? Jung pauses and he says, I don't believe, I know. And again, we may have discussed this in previous salons, but he, he got, there was a lot of backlash for that, about, of Jung saying, I know that God exists, because people are hearing that in a very Christian context. But what he's really speaking to is this fundamental lived experience of a knowledge of something that goes beyond just science and logos. There's some fundamental experience of of a universal God or, or a universal essence that gives Jung life, that gave Jung life. So he was working on trying to understand this difference between belief and fundamental knowledge, right? And, and again, this is something we've been talking about for weeks, the, the two kinds of truths, the imaginal truth, the Magdalenian truth, you know, the truth of nature and existence versus the truth of logos, knowledge, and science. So page 287... Jung says, the ancients called the saving word the Logos, an expression of divine reason. So much unreason was in man that he needed reason to be saved. If one waits long enough, one sees how the gods all change into serpents and underworld dragons in the end. This is also the fate of the Logos. In the end, it poisons us all. In time, we were all poisoned, but unknowingly, we kept the one, the powerful one, the eternal wanderer in us away from the poison. We spread poison and paralysis around us in that we want to educate all the world around us into reason. Some have their reason in thinking, others in feeling. Both are servants of Logos and in secret become worshippers of the serpent. So there's a lot in there. Jung is speaking to typology. There's also a section that, just right at the beginning, I'll just read this again briefly, 283 then, he's, he's setting up Jung's whole understanding of typology here, this quaternity, and he's setting it up with the directions, the east, west, north, and south, and Jung is expressing his own journey of getting to his inferior function, of going to the east where his inferior function is. He's yet to travel to this space. He says, I wandered towards the south and found the unbearable heat of solitude within myself. He's navigating these different quadrants. I wandered towards the north and found the cold death from which all the world dies. I withdrew to the western land where the men are rich in knowing and doing. And I began to suffer from the sun's empty darkness. And I threw everything from me and wandered toward the east where the light rises daily. I went to the East like a child. I did not ask, I simply waited." So he is expressing an imaginal form, his attempt to round out his own psychological self, his own typology. And he's saying in this, in this paragraph I read previously on 287, he's finding the way that science and logos, the rational functions, the rational functions of feeling and thinking, which is the way his typology is set up, that there's some sense of failure here for him to fully engage with belief, fundamental belief, and that our whole world was balanced out first, you know, thinking of the serpent path first, we balance out by adding logos to the irrational. And now it's very clear that he needs, and we all need on some level to go back to the irrational in order to balance out. So the serpentine journey of balancing the opposites, this Taoist journey of balancing the opposites. Again, it's not just find one path and stick to it. You know, find one schedule and stick to it. We're, we're balancing personally and collectively all the time with this navigation between the opposites. This bouncing back, if you read those, that first section of this, you, you can feel Jung bouncing, truly sort of bouncing from the from the hot to the light, or the hot to the cold, the black to the white, in order to get to where he needs to go to encounter this God of the irrational world. And then they start having this dialogue with each other. So I'll just say briefly that for me, a lot of what this speaks to is something fundamental that we're wrestling with in our culture all the time. This idea of fact, you know, this idea of fake news. I mean, who holds the facts, who holds faith? Our culture is split down the middle certainly in America but worldwide we're seeing this same resurgence again that was happening a lot in Jung's time of not just neo-Nazis and racism but all of what this kind of other side of culture if you will holds in terms of what we are allowed quote-unquote to believe or think there's a rejection of science and a rejection of facts and a rejection of elitism that I think it's worth using Jung's psychology to really try to understand what's going on in that space psychologically, because what he's speaking to at this time is that our culture is in fact missing something when we rely entirely on fact, reason, logos, and this quote-unquote elitism that we have to defer to quote-unquote experts in order to know what truth is. And Jung's really wrestling with that in this, in his own skin of how does one find truth in themselves? How does one find faith in themselves? And I think the backlash, the sort of shadow of this in our culture is that you don't need to reason. You just can come up with facts. We see this constantly in the news. You just come up, you just say something and that's a fact. That's the shadow of all this, of our not, I think, really wrestling with and appreciating the value of the irrational that if we don't value the irrational it shows up in shadow form in this completely chaotic way of just anyone can come up with truth and and if you say you believe in god then you have a relationship with god and so there's some part of the population that now sort of owns the relationship with god but there's a feeling like do they have a relationship with god you know we're i mean i don't want to get sort of too in the weeds here but this constant balance of where is god and where is truth as if they're at odds. And I think right here Jung is at the intersection of that kind of debate between quote-unquote God and quote-unquote truth or science as if there's no ability for the two of them to relate to each other. So, what do you think, Carol? What are you thinking over there? I, 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 I'm going to
1: just take this the next step as we discussed, because uh, to me, I, I'm going to read a little bit beyond where you have, have spoken, but I also want to bring it to, um, I have this wonderful image from the Red Book, where he says, alas, he is my dearest, most beautiful friend.
0: Is this from our next week as well? This is, Night is Falling. Okay, so just to, I just want to describe this image, because I think it's actually quite hard to see, even if you've got the book right in front of you, that mm-hmm. here's Jung with his arms out, arms outstretched. We're going to read this more next week. But Dubar here on the right is laying the giant, yeah, yeah. And I think it sort of blends into the horizon there. So just to see this image of Isdubar in this night sky laying down and Jung praying up to the heavens. Okay, thank you, Carol. Well,
1: and it's image 44 in the Red Book. But on page 284, to continue, saw the, the conversation of opposites. You know, with the Anchorite, with the Red One, with Elijah, with Salome, with all of these encounters, there has been a kind of otherness as Jung is approaching an an inner wholeness. And one of the reasons I love this section the most, he says, this is on page 284, the path of my life led me beyond the rejected opposites, united in smooth and, alas, extremely painful sides of the way which lay before me. Then he says the outer opposition is an image of my opposition. Once I realize this, I remain silent and think of the chasm of antagonism in my soul. Outer oppositions are easy to overcome. They indeed exist, but nevertheless, you can be united with yourself. They will indeed burn and freeze your souls, but only your souls. It hurts, but you continue and look toward distant goals. He says, as I rose to the highest point and my hope wanted to look out toward the east, a miracle happened. As I moved toward the east, one from the east hurried toward me and strove toward the sinking light. I wanted light, he wanted night. I wanted to rise, he wanted to sink. I was dwarfish like a child while he was enormous, like an elementally powerful hero. Knowledge lamed me while he was blinded by the fullness of the light, and so we hurried toward each other. He from the light, I from the darkness. He strong, I weak. He God, I serpent. He ancient, I utterly new. He unknowing, I knowing, he fantastic, I sober. He brave, powerful, I cowardly, cunning. But we were both astonished to see one another on the border between morning and evening. So as he's having all of these thoughts, he realizes that he loves he loves this man. He loves this. He loves this other. He loves the self and the other. And he says, if my God, on page 290, if my God is lamed, I must stand by him since I cannot abandon the much loved. So now we have love entering again, not just Salome and the pale maiden in the castle in the forest asking him, do you love me? And him saying, by God, I do. But now we have, we're encountering another kind of love, which is interesting to me again about, about the Gilgamesh story because, of course, Gilgamesh's wounds, in a way, are healed by the brotherhood and friendship of, of Enkidu. But he says, I sense that he is my lot, my brother who abided and grew in the light while I was in the darkness and fed myself with poison. Then at the bottom he says, it is therefore prudent to keep alive the severely afflicted so that his force continues to support me. We miss nothing more than divine force. We say, yes, indeed, this is how it should be or could be, this or that should be achieved. We speak thus and stand thus and look about us, embarrassed to see whether somehow something will occur, and should something happen, we look on and say, yes, indeed, we understand it is this or that, or it is similar to this or that. And thus we speak and stand and look around to see whether something somewhere might happen. Something always happens, but we do not happen since our God is sick. We have seen him dead with the venomous gaze of the basilisk on his face, and we have understood that he is dead. We must think of his healing. And yet again, I feel it quite clearly that my life would have broken in half had I failed to heal my God. Hence, I abided with him in the long cold night Mm. and for me this is where the images begin to arise I I think somewhere Jung says that besides this the instinct survival the the instinct of creativity and the instinct of spirit are indwelling and innate and I think that this particular part of the journey is very much about keeping it alive, keeping this, the creator, your creator alive. It reminds me of the story in his autobiography where he carves the little mannequin and puts him in the pencil box and keeps him safe in the attic where this generative, powerful principle, not just the sun in the day, but the sun in a matrix of the created creates and maintains the whole world through an honoring of the spirit and the life of it. So I, um, I never think- mind what's going to ha- you know happens next, which I find marvelous. This particular encounter, the fall of the hero, Jung beginning to reconcile the opposites. You know that great sixty-four dollar word, enantiodromia. You know the tendency of things to move towards each other. Just this whole scene of lighting a fire and keeping the god alive through the night that i i cannot i love him and i cannot kill him is just seems like speaking of hinge is such an incredible hinge point to me in this book
0: it's such an incredible hinge point and i think just as we you know as anyone who tries to study jung psychology through the jargon of it right through the idea of anima and animus and shadow and and uh numinous and whatever words are kind of part of the jungian vocabulary you know that as soon as you open one up you get contradictions and you get jung contradicting himself and you get things that are antiquated and all that so it's not quite clear cut and i think it's it's part of the reason that jung psychology doesn't get taught as often i mean it's because there's there's too much complexity in the the concepts themselves you know it's that it's our entire beingness we're not just We're not just studying, um, you know, psychopathology or abnormal psychology. We're studying existence and being human. And so here I find, I mean, part of what we're navigating is that this is both Jung's shadow. It's again, it's not just seeing the lowly as the shadow, the kind of figure of the outcast young man. We're seeing this shadow, Jung's opposite, as his god Mm -hmm. and also you know, the way that they they become poison to each other in this encounter. It's this question of kind of the shadow and the God in this interplay. There's this line, I think, Carol, you read, the outer opposition is an image of my inner opposition, yeah. right? Is so po- potent, again, in terms of uh, the ways that Jung speaks in this book and throughout his psychology about the fact that The schisms we see externally in our world are the schisms internally. So again, for me, this idea of science versus God and religion that we're seeing all over our country in America, certainly, I mean, again, it's worldwide, but this idea of faith versus reason is so profound right now. And, and for, I think most of us, I would say, who are gathered in this community, there's most likely more an adherence to the idea of reason in a certain respect, but we're all, I think, navigating by studying Jung's work or religion or philosophy, uh, certain philosophies kind of veering into, well, what is faith too? Right. And so this other line on 285 Jung says, no longer do outer opposites stand in my way, but mm. my own opposite comes towards me and rises up hugely before me and we block each other's way. That Jung can't continue in his journey, in his wholeness, again, without fully encountering the irrational. And this, I think, Carol, when you say this is really where the images start, it feels that way, certainly, that he's, he's coming face to face, head to head. He can't walk. There's a Dr. Seuss book that this reminds me of, too. You remember that Dr. Seuss book of, of the two walking from the east to the west, I think, and they're yeah. on a straight path? You know, yeah. it's like the two-dimensional journey where you just, you can't move, then you've encountered each other, and somehow they have to get past some opposition in order to pass each other. So yeah. they're, they're truly blocking each other's path, and Jung has to wrestle with what is the irrational, and again, cliffhanger, what we're going to see in the next couple, next week, you know, is is this profound wrestling with the irrational. I just had extraordinary birds come and perch right outside my, my window. So I <laughs> look to these beautiful birds. So something, you know, just feeling the numinosity here, yeah. uh, your rivals, right. Uh, and that for Jung, really his psychology, I mean, the crux, what he comes to and what he teaches and what he writes about is what heals is the numinous. That's for him. It's not, pills. It's not surgery. I mean, you know, for Jung, what heals, what he comes to in his entire psychology is what heals is the numinous, the encounter with the numinous, the encounter with something that is beyond our rational capacity to understand. That's the dream work, the imaginal work, the relational work. It's those moments of numinous expression. So I'm going to tell the story of the scarab again. Carol, have we told the full story of the scarab? No, still, tell it. Okay, because the bird's showing up at my window. Now I have to kind of offer what this synchronicity is, you know, because I've never, I want to just say, I've never seen birds perch outside the window in this way. And so it just really struck me. So the story of the scarab, you know, is that the numinous heels, that Jung is sitting with a patient And uh, she is, he describes her as being this very kind of stubborn young woman or woman who just can't get past her rational mind and doesn't understand what he's talking about and is very annoyed with him. And they're talking about a dream of hers. And he can't seem to find a way past her kind of rational stubbornness. And she's telling a dream about a scarab beetle. And he, I think, probably wants to do the mythic uh, you know, storytelling and all that, but sort of nothing is moving her, nothing's happening, right? So they're discussing this dream, and he's feeling frustrated, and then they, he hears this this rapping at the window, this kind of knocking at the window, and he's like, what is that? You know, it's not a sound he hears very often, so he goes open, and he opens up the window, and he sk- sees a beetle, a large beetle sitting outside his window, And he, you can imagine Jung, chuckles to himself and picks up this beetle, which is in Switzerland, the closest beetle to a scarab beetle that exists. And he picks up this beetle and he shows it to the woman and he says, here's your scarab beetle. And he said, that's the moment when she suddenly, something in her rational being completely shifted. And she descended into a sense of numinous experience and allowed her dream to work on her instead of blocking it again this sense of opposition blocking any any intervention from her, her irrational or the irrational world she was moved you know and by being moved that sense of being moved something transformed in her something shifted and he said from that point on they could actually do therapy together she wasn't just resisting everything right so the numinous heals that's a story he tells in the numinous as being a healing function and again you can feel him really, Learning that in a very profound way through this journey with Dubar. yeah
1: and, and and particularly, I just wanted this is a little bit of plot jumping too, but this is image forty five and this is the the footnote about this that has to do love and that the that the arrival at the inner obstacle, the inner blocking the inner arrival at stasis that precipitates a recognition of love that precipitates an opening to the numinous. And I find this drawing quite marvelous. And the footnote about it is that um, it comes from um, an Indian matrix of healing that involves magical plants to restore virility. And I think that this idea of Jung keeping his God alive with magic through the night so that we, they can take the next stage in their journey of being in the process not so much of reunion but of something new is being made out of the light and the and essentially the plants the healing of the plants so i love this image and we'll look at it a little bit more next week
0: thank you carol what bounty and abundance you Again, bet the abundance yeah All right, y'all, I think this is the point in our journey together where we open it up for questions and answers. We'd love what's bubbling for you, what's bubbling in terms of questions on the text, questions on anything that we've expressed astrologically, politically, just noticing what's bubbling for you, or things you want to share from your own experiences. Hi, Janet. Hi, I'm talking to you all the way from Edinburgh, Scotland. So that's brilliant, isn't
2: it? (laughs) You live in a beautiful, beautiful city. Uh, thank you. Um, I hope it's okay to bring in um, the work of Ian McGilchrist. On oh, the, yes. Please. Oh, yeah. uh, what just struck me as so significant, really, he, he talks about a pyramid of values, which is from somebody called Max Shaler. It's not that different to other pyramids of values like uh, uh, Maslow, but I, I think it's particularly helpful. I can't hold it up very well because I've broken my arm. But the the bottom layer of this pyramid he calls values of use and pleasure.
3: Mm.
2: And that's the left hemisphere, but it's also to do with words. Uh, Broca's area, the, the language part of the brain, is in the left hemisphere. So the left hemisphere has all the words And when I think about the master and his emissary, I think about uh, Mickey Mouse and the Sorcerer's Apprentice as well. Mm. The left hemisphere is the apprentice who thinks, I can use this magic to make uh, something that will automatically do my cleaning job for me. And then, of course, the magic, he can't stop it. And that's a little bit like Western science as well in my mind. And then as we go up the values, we have values of vitality, values of the intellect, I think probably in a a, a more mystical sense. And at the top, we have the holy. When I was studying my MA, I opted to read uh, the Corpus Hermeticum and the Asclepius. And in that, there are equally, I mean, this is 2,000 years ago, they're saying... We have two kinds of mind. We have the people of reason or rationalizing or uh, thinking, who uh, their nature is willful and angry, and they think the world exists for them to have stuff that they enjoy. The higher mind, the, the nous, was planted in us by the gods, so that they can communicate with us by images and help us. Okay, mm-hmm. well, that just um, seems so apt, and I just wanted to offer those connections. Um, mm-hmm. Thank,
0: Thank you, you, Janet, so much. We we have we really appreciate that. It's exactly I think. I mean, we've spoken about Ian McGilchrist, and we've spoken about that this Magdalenian way versus the sort of Peter way in the Christian church. I mean, we've been exploring this. We're you know glad to have your um contribution <laughs> um and for those who do want to reference that it's ian mcgilchrist's book the master and his emissary he's scottish right janet he
2: he lives on the island of Skye. um he was an oxford scholar and uh, so he's studied and taught i think english literature um, but then he uh, also became a psychiatrist and was consultant to the Maudsley Hospital in London. But he lives on Sky now. He's made a film as well about his own sort of learning journey. And if people search for him, you'll also find a little like 10-minute animation which where he goes through a 500-page book in about 10 minutes, which is
0: also right. quite neat. <laughs> Thank you. So just and just briefly, the premise is that the that the logos mind was supposed to be the kind of workhorse, if you will, of the higher mind of the imaginal mind, and it 's instead turned sort of um parasitic, you know that it it has it has taken over completely it was supposed to be a workhorse, and so again, really, Jung is doing this work of trying to rebalance and find where the truth of existence lies. Versus the poison, and you can see in this that that Isdubar is experiencing that overwhelming energy of logos as being poisoned to his realm. Carol, any other thoughts? I, I just
1: no, that's it, it's it's wonderful. but I I, I love McGillchrist's work, and um and I didn't realize that he had taught literature, but that helps me understand his wonderful uh, references to to distinctions about metaphor about the parts of the brain that are metaphorical the other thing it just off the top of my head rick richard tarnas from ciis who wrote the brilliant book cosmos and psyche at a an lecture at an astrology conference was talking about these different approaches to the cosmos and he and he set it up as a potential date and he said um so you have a potential suitor and one says come with me baby and i'll give you a world of certainty calculation outcomes but empty of feeling or the suitor that says, come with me and we'll co-create a fantastic world full of imagination and spirit. Then he looks at the audience, he says, and who would you date? <laughs> you know, and, um, and I, I, I think I, I recall that story with a great deal of fondness. I'm not telling it as well as Tarnas himself told it, but, you know, it was this idea about how will we be in the world? You
4: know?
0: And how just how much we are raised at the West with, Everything you're supposed to think is you want the certainty, you want yeah. the stability. I mean, both literally with marriage, that's been the storyline and in everything we're taught in school, you know, all the quote unquote irrational has been removed and all of the certainty is what we're taught. And so then again, you can feel this backlash in all sorts of forms where that either doesn't work for people or it's poisonous. It feels poisonous and it feels because it's it's stripping the life and existence and arrows out of, out of life. All right, we're getting good bubbles. Lori, you've been on deck for a bit. Hi.
4: Hi. I wanted to share a little story about my own journey a few years ago when I was having what I called irrational behavior images. didn't make sense. And I was sitting with um, Lionel Corbett, and he said, Lori, it's not irrational, it's non rational.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: which made so much sense to me because that's what was coming through the
1: intuition
4: mm-hmm.
1: rather than it's crazy.
4: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: It shouldn't be happening. Yeah, It didn't make sense. There wasn't a reason. And, and it
6: just gave ground to the things that were happening that I couldn't understand at the time.
0: Beautiful. Thank you. Thanks for opening up that word a bit and the, and the, the biases that we have in 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 that word irrational versus simply the, the opposite. Or again, we get so tied up with language, right? Non-rational, but the fact that rational itself is even, it's like man versus woman, right? Like rational is the, the normal. That's what we've been delivered with patriarchy and all the rest. Rational is the starting place. So then we have to go to non-rational or irrational versus the imaginal or eros or something that is just completely separate and not just a, you know, a modifier of rational. So language, so profound. Thank you, Laurie. Um, hi, Jesse and Allison.
5: Hi. Hi, Jesse. Uh, this beautiful morning so far, it's been so lovely, I love this part of the book. I just got stuck on that sort of tension between science and religion or science and God something I've been thinking about a lot recently, watching the way the world is going and watching the way the United States is going and being this person who's so situated in the realms of psyche and of myth and to watch as sort of the right wing or people who really identify with God and God images are sort of using myth in their own kind of alternative facts kind of way, like really using myth, really using psyche. And it feels really strange to be sitting here and sort of be on the opposite end of it and sort of understanding it in a certain way or at least watching what's happening and not really knowing the way to interact with it or having a real path for interacting with it. I mean, I'm, I'm grateful to Jung for demonstrating this whole path of holding these tensions and trying to figure out how we navigate these disparate, worlds or landscapes or and i don't have a direct place i'm going with this thought but it just that just came back to me again in a profound way to, to think just how do we move forward knowing what we know about psyche and about this problem between psyche and logos or mythos and logos what is the you know i just i'm constantly wondering what's the next step how do we reengage these powers to create conversation and do healing in the world. Can, you,
0: can you say a little more about how you see the right using myth?
5: Yeah, to, I mean, I feel like alternative facts is a perfect example of like, someone says, hey, what you're saying is not true. It's not scientifically viable. It's, I don't observe it in reality. And then, you know, Kellyanne Conway says, well, it's an alternative fact. She's saying, I'm making something up and it's also true to me and to my group, mm-hmm. which is myth.
1: I think more recently about the Jericho walk that when, that when, um, when Trump had his photo op with the Bible
5: and yeah. a, mm-hmm.
1: a certain um, part of the Christian fundamentalists said it, it's the Jericho walk. He's, he's doing the Jericho walk. So I, I, I mean, we have a very recent example of, of it, but if it's alive and well in us, of course it's alive and well in them.
0: No. Well, or it's, it's 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 excluded. I mean, again, I think fundamental to what's happening is if the left. So we're getting deep political here, which I kind of try to.
5: Joke. Sorry, I no, know. No, no, it's.
0: I'm I mean, Jesse, you're completely on point, and obviously, I mean, I was alluding to it and speaking to it earlier, but um, it's just to get you know straight into the left and the right. Here we are again with these opposites, right? Politically, if the left maintains the kind of we know the facts and we know the science mentality it catalyzes on the right what we what on the left doesn't want to deal with which is what is going on with anti-vax need for a different level of certainty or what is going on with church going communities that don't want to subscribe to science i mean there's something fundamental in our psychology nationwide that is trying to wrestle with science versus not science or giving our beliefs over to people who do experiments in labs and not being able to find truths within ourselves. You know, what is an expert versus what is knowledge found internally? And we're seeing this wrestling everywhere and some of the wrestling seems to actually be happening and some of it is just reactive. Well, I also have facts. I don't like your facts. Then we're just in a soup together. Oh, it's such a mess. That's the meeting on the path. Yeah.
5: Yeah. It just—it feels like with like if mythos is that which is spoken, it really depends on where the myth is coming from. It's huge. Is it that depth, or is it reactivity? Mm -hmm.
0: And is it an old myth that's being just fallen back to to rely on to say, "Well, I have this on my side," or is it some some living myth that we're pulling forward, right? Some creation of something. Thank you, Jesse. Libby, you you showed up in this conversation. Well, yes. I am uh,
4: often just very frustrated and at my wit's end w- with the science and the fake news. Just I'll just call it that for shorthand. But you know, uh, I have often felt for the last 20 years, having studied the sciences, having seen you know uh, the great things that uh, science can bring to us. It is not sufficient to be a belief system of our world. So, you know, sometimes it's elevated to that and served up as, as a belief system, you know, the scientific method, and that's insufficient too. So it's just, you know, a quandary.
0: Mm-hmm. It is such a quandary. Yeah. Just to be in this soup together of what, yeah. where do we find truth? And then depending on your political perspective, how much credence do you give to that? discovery of truth you know Anita oh I've just been pondering and, and reflecting on what we're
4: all seeing you know out there as the perfect outpicturing of the fear of the dark the fear of the um, unconscious that actually we can see in even being able to be slave traders you know way back when right it's like I mean, all of us know at some deep level that what's going on right now is such a necessary and healing catharsis, even though it's really painful, you know, really, really, really painful to watch what's going on. I was really moved this morning by a little story that appeared in synchronicity with what we've been, the story that we've been reading today of the soldier, the Marine, the, uh, the, the ex-Marine, the, who was wondering what he could possibly do. Did anyone else see this story? And he put on his, he went home and he put on his uniform. This is a white, a white man, a white Marine, a white Marine and went out and stood. And I can't even remember now where he was standing in front of, but it's a great expanse of, of concrete and a very, very hot day. And he's standing there with his sign declaring, you know, his, his conviction, you know, about, how we need to make our peace with the dark with you know with our own unconscious right in this and his shoes are melting in the pavement right his shoes are melting in the pavement and I just thought of that as we were reading about Jung you know kind of trying to make his way from cold to dark cold to dark
0: and Um, his souls he says my souls are burning yes my souls are burning yeah yeah Yeah.
4: so anyway I just wanted to I, I love the way that what's actually unfolding, you know, in the outer world is so full of mm-hmm. archetypal and mythic ref,
0: uh, resonance.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Thank, thank, you. thank you. Yeah, it brings up so much. But, but I also, well, yeah, what, what, you know, when you spoke to slavery, again, for me, <clears throat> I always think of factory farming, too. And just the ways that we have all been trained to believe that certain things have life in them and certain things don't. And it's just fundamental and core to our way of existing in this world that we've been trained into certain belief systems that go against empathy or Eros or whatever, but it's quote unquote science. It's quote unquote rational. And you can see, you know, how, how still that, that in, is part and parcel to racism and sexism and all of it. Um, you know, what is superior and not? What is more rational and not? So thank you for bringing that forward again.
4: Hi, Ann. Anne. Very, very quick. One of my favorite sentences in this was, that, I, I feel like my life would have broken in half had I failed to heal my god. And mm-hmm. I was looking at the drawings with the crocodiles and mm-hmm. there's this beautiful Hindu goddess. I'm not sure I can pronounce her name correctly. Akilandeswari, who rides on a crocodile and she's the goddess of never not broken.
0: Mm for your things to fit this verse so perfectly. Beautiful. Thank you. Never not broken. Never not broken?
4: The goddess of never not broken, riding on a
0: crocodile, which is what you have in this image here. Hi, Steve. You've had your hand up for a bit.
6: Hi. Wow. This has been quite quite a journey since we had that the question and answer first started. I um well, on the, on the ratio thing, uh, I, I just wanted to comment. Um, I think James Gleick, the science writer, in um, his book Chaos, which is about the history of uh, how chaos theory started to finally get accepted and studied in Western science. But I believe he talks in there about how the very term irrational comes from the, well, there, there are things that can't be neatly described by a mathematician in math and science. We didn't talk about them. Because there's no there's no mathematical ratio, therefore it's irrational. Therefore, it's probably not worth studying or discussing. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, so it was only in the in the 1950s and 60s that that scientists and mathematicians started talking about what chaos, um, how it worked, how these chaotic patterns like clouds and um, these kind of forces, this idea of the butterfly effect, that that we that 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 science had actually started investigating those kind of processes. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'm sorry, I was kind of going tangentially getting there because I was really intrigued by this this image of the bull man showing up here. And, I, and I've just been trying to wrap my head around this this, this image of the bull in, in, in ancient mythology, its associations with Osiris, its, its associations with the, the Mithraic cult, that there's all these things in, the, in, in, this, in this time with, with the bull. And it kind of struck me that it's this kind of primordial animal force. It, it, it feels like it's this kind of like, you know, this quote-unquote irrational, this chaotic force that, you know, isn't this neat ratio of things and that, that the intellectual Jung is, is, is kind of confronting here. So I was just wondering if you had any thoughts, you know, about this, this, the, the importance of this kind of bull imagery in, in the, the mythology of this period and and why this is kind of so intrinsic to the imagery in this chapter.
1: Well, I can certainly, I, I won't speak about this just from an astrological frame, although that, that's a primary frame for me. Both in the Chinese culture and in the ancient Near Eastern culture, the bulls were revered for their power and not just for their power not just for their size but for their uh for lack of a better term um uh, what i'm trying to think of the word that i'm I, I, some people call talk about tauruses from an astrological point of view as stubborn but that what what the great gift of the bull is is inertia that that very hard to start but once started very hard to stop so this idea of a life force that, you know, it's, it's what's happening in the northern hemisphere in April and May, that after the enormous like rush of, of light and growth comes the return to earth and the stability and the coming down to earth. And that everything roots itself and begins to stabilize itself for the long haul—not just the, the quick eruptive energy, but the stabilizing force. And the great, the royal stars of Persia in the ancient world: the bull, the lion, the scorpion, and um, and the water bearer. And the, the stars, Aldebaran and Antares and Fomalhaut, and um, um, are they're all symbols of the incredible uh, power of durability in nature. So, in you know, when you when we see the remnants of those culture, which of course ISIS was hell bent on destroying those images because they realized how potent it was to destroy the the symbol of of strength and history. Uh, so I, th- that idea of nature's staring, staying power, not just of yes, it happens to be embodied in this particular am, animal image, but that really what it 's about is this incredible stability
6: mm. Wow, thank you so much
1: thank you
0: and I think for me too, the connection to the feminine you spoke to just yeah. brings this keeps bringing this back to okay. what are what is the op- what are parts of these opposites that we 're encountering here. Yeah. Um, Hi John.
7: Well two very fast ones. One is I thought of the same thing as Jesse but I instead of the current administration I thought of the Nazis and their love for the operas of Richard Wagner. Pathological application of mythos in the same sense. Um, The other thing I was going to think is that you know in ancient times it was bad to be illogical but it was not bad to be irrational because illogical you're going against the logos but the irrational just meant something that could not be quantified or measured, and the Pythagoreans knew that the golden mean was irrational. It's mathematically rational, but it was it was a wonderful uh, number to them with all these mystical religious qualities. So, uh, illogical was bad in ancient Greece, but irrational could be could be wonderful. It just meant you couldn't quantify it.
1: Radiant so, life.
7: Yeah, those are my two little footnotes.
1: Wow.
0: Great. Thank you, John. Thank you. Hi, Randy.
3: Hello. Good morning, everybody. Um, Yeah, this has been another great session, especially here on Father's Day. Um, I happen to be doing a project involving Gilgamesh right now, so I have been rereading it. So it's interesting that this thing came up what I did is right off the bat where in the red book, they talk about, there's a footnote that references the symbols of transformation. And so I've been reading through this and all the references to Gilgamesh in it. And this was written in 1912. But what's interesting is there's a lot of what's discussed about Gilgamesh in the red book in here already about, um, a healing herb about magic. Um, and encounters, but there's a fundamental difference. In the transfer in the symbols of transformation, there's a lot of talk about God as the father and needing to overcome. And here's a typical line: Gilgamesh's fight with the giant um Hambaba. In this fight, the father may also be represented by some sort of magical animal which has to be overcome, but he can equally well be represented by a giant or a magician or a wicked tyrant. So there's a lot of talk about God and fathers as something that needs to be overcome and heroes carrying them. But what I thought was fascinating about the red book is this attitude has changed where it says, if my God is lame, I must stand by him since I cannot abandon the much love. And I think it's interesting that there's been a lot of work that has come from the symbols of transformation in terms of, I think of iron John and the need to kill the father to move on and then Young in the red book talks about a different way of approaching a blamed father that love still connects in a way. And I think it, one of the many examples why I think it's good that this book has been published. And as you alluded to earlier, that, um, If we just follow the words of Jung, we end up with one conclusion. But to actually see how it was made, it's a much different approach to whether a symbolic father of how we deal with patriarchal gods or even our own father about how we deal with that. And yet the love still connects. Mm. So I just thought... um, it's just something that has occurred to me that I will definitely be continuing on in my own project. But I thought it was an interesting change, especially here on Father Father's Day, and especially after reading the New York Times again with all the stories about how people are overcoming. Yeah.
0: Hmm. Thank you, Randy. Again, another poignant reflection on parenting and yeah. fathering, you know, brought me straight back to Freud and just the necessity of killing the father, right? And And that whole journey, that whole exploration
3: yeah
0: so thanks I hadn't made that connection but on father's day it's a perfect perfect connection with gilgamesh where we are with all this um all right y'all um we are sending all of you love happy father's day for whatever that means for you making your own meaning of it and we'll all see you next week for the continuation of this is dubar journey thank you carol bye all Many thanks to our incredible podcast team. To Anne Carroll for German translation and soulful insights. To our producer, Ayal Alvis, for turning this rough audio into a podcast. To Kelly Swenson for your dedicated work behind the scenes. To Haley Hendrix for the incredible podcast music. And to Ray Davis for our beautiful art. You're all brilliant and talented, and we're very grateful. Please tune in soon for another episode of the Salome Podcast.